could be a mega church. Okay, mega church. Mega church. In my opinion, there's churches popping up everywhere. And I sometimes wonder, is it about the money or is it about the message? Interesting stuff, huh? <laughs> there was tons and tons of opinions until you got to, what does the Bible teach about money? I have no idea. I have no idea. No idea. So part of what we're trying to do here is we're trying to remedy that. What does the Bible teach about money? The reason so few of us know is because we're not so sure we want to know. And so that's why it's so common for this topic to be avoided or misrepresented when it is taught. And so we're trying to do something about that with this uh, series of messages called This is Awkward. Um, let me start by asking you guys, uh, raise your hand if you've ever been to a Brazilian barbecue. Yeah, yes. It's, you, you really should not just raise your hand. You should grunt like David when you do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Brazilian, if you haven't been to a Brazilian barbecue, let me tell you what that entails. Basically, a Brazilian barbecue, they have in the kitchen this giant open flame with just tons of skewers of meat of every kind on these skewers on a spit, turning over an open flame, marinated meat, just every kind of thing you can imagine. If it's meat, they got it. It's marinated. It's good. And the cool thing is, it is all you can eat. They pull the little skewer off. They bring it to your table. They go, you want some of this? And you go, oh, oh, oh. and then they slice it off, put it on your plate. They keep bringing you stuff like every kind of thing you can imagine. Meat, meat, meat. And you eat, if you're a meat lover, like I, I'm a vegan. <laughs> Sorry, you can't lie in church. Uh, I am a meat lover. And uh, they bring it and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm just like, I could, I'm perfectly satisfied. I've had the right amount of meat. So let me have more. 
And then they, they keep bringing it, and they're like, how would you like some of this filet mignon? And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> they give you some of that. How would you like some of this tri-tip? Okay. How would you like some of this pork shoulder? Okay. And you, they keep putting it on your plate, and you eat, and your stomach grows, and you sit there holding your stomach going, oh, like that. And you think, I'm literally in pain now. And then you have just a few more helpings. <laughs> and then you're just holding your gut, moaning. And you're done. You can't eat another bite of meat. And then they bring by the dessert cart. And I remember asking the waiter one time, like, oh my gosh, does anyone ever order dessert? He goes, you'd be surprised how many people order dessert because they want something sweet after all that savory. And I'm like, well, maybe just one piece of cheesecake. <laughs> It's amazing how, you know, we can have enough to be satisfied and we're not satisfied. And then we want a little bit more to the point where it's actually becoming a burden. And then we go, yeah, just a little bit more would be enough. It's, it's, it's tough to satisfy us. Why are we like that? I want to I illustrate this point for you here. Um, I brought a balloon, so let me blow this up. That's about big enough. Okay, so let me tell you, when I was uh, a freshman in high school, I uh, went to camp for the first time. And at camp, they had archery. And so I went out to the archery thing, and I became hooked. I fell in love with archery. They taught us how to do it. There was a guy there who was a real good teacher. He taught us how to do it. I got, I won the contest for, you know, who could hit the most bullseyes and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, this is my thing. And ever since then, I have been into archery. So um, what I want to do is illustrate this using archery. So let me see. Byron, can you help me out? <laughs> I just need you. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to hang this balloon in that doorway, okay? So I'm going to put a piece of tape on here. And so what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to open those doors. Oh, here comes in somebody. Be careful. We don't want that. Okay, but after he comes in, we're going to open those doors, and then you should open the doors behind them. So okay. if the arrow goes through, it goes into the parking lot and doesn't hit the door, okay? Just hang it from the header there. And I brought with me an old bow. So... We're going to see how I'm doing with this, okay? <laughs> okay, so now he's got that hanging there, okay? Everybody see that? If you Can you see it from over there? Okay, so, yeah, wouldn't that be awful? Some visitors coming up, running late, boom. <laughs> yeah, make sure. <laughs> Byron's shirt is the same color as the balloon, too. That could be a problem. <laughs> okay, so what I'm going to do, and, and this is a pretty, obviously, a very short distance, very easy to hit that from here. Um, and, but you have to have some power because if you just sort of hit it going softly, it won't pop the balloon. Um, it will just hit the balloon and then get deflected. Byron, are we good? Okay. So I'm going to see about if I can just hit that balloon, and, and I'm going to concentrate. What I want to know before we shoot is 
Uh, just by show of hands, who's on my side? Who thinks I'm going to get it? Okay, leave your hands up if you think I can hit it. Yeah, some of you are like, well, I don't want them to be mad at me. Okay, if, seriously, leave your hands up. You think I can hit it? Leave your hands up. Okay, that's, you know, it's, it's a little more probably than half of us. Okay, all right, so you guys have encouraged me. Um, right before I shoot, though, one thing. Um, keep your hands up if you said I could do it. Um, how many of you with your hands up are, are willing to actually go and hold the balloon and let me shoot? <laughs> Okay, we still got a few hands up. Good. Awesome. We got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, about eight more people. Okay. Of those of you with your hands up, who's willing to hold it in their teeth? <laughs> Nobody? None of you trust me enough to hold it in your teeth? Oh, my gosh. You guys. All right. Let me just. Never mind. I have no idea how to shoot this thing. <laughs> You can come back, Byron. <laughs> you don't have to do parking lot duty anymore. Okay, you guys just helped me so much, right? Because there's a point that I want to make with all this. Here it is. As Christians, we believe God, sort of. We believe God to a point. And, and we say, yeah, I believe, you know, in Jesus. I think he lived and died on the cross and rose again. And I believe in the Bible. And I believe, I believe, and all that kind of stuff. But that's like saying, I believe that he can hit that balloon, which you were wrong to believe in the first place. But, you know, most of you believed that well. But when I said, who's willing to hold it? I found out most of you were not true believers. Right? Right? I mean, as long as there's no risk to you, it's easy to believe, right? But if I say you're going to have to hold this thing, you're like, ah, oh, that's my hand. I, I use this hand, right? And then when I said, who's willing to hold it in their teeth? Some of you real brave people were not so brave. And we found out even you were not real believers, right? Because a real believer doesn't just intellectually give assent to something, but the Bible's definition of belief has to do with putting your weight in it and letting what you believe hold you. It has to do with dictating your life, what you do, not just what you say, what you do, not just what you think, where you go, what you spend your money on, what you spend your time doing, what you obey and don't obey from Scripture. That's what really determines the, the veracity, if you will, of your faith. Now listen, none of us has perfect faith. We're, we're growing in our faith, I hope, right? So I'm not saying that if, if you don't, if you don't you know, do every single thing the Scripture calls you to do, that somehow you're not saved, but I am saying this, remember Matthew 25, where that famous story where it says, and Jesus talked about how he's going to come back one day and separate the sheep from the goats, and, and he's going to put the sheep on his left and the goats on his right, and he's going to say to the sheep, you know, uh, you, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And, and therefore, enter into your rest. And the sheep are going to say, when did we do that? 
I don't remember ever doing that. And Jesus said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And then he says to the goats, he says, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was sick, you didn't visit me. And they say, well, when, when did you have all those issues and we didn't do it? And he says, whenever you didn't do it to the least of, me, of these, you did not do it to me. And he basically is saying in this story that if you have genuine faith, it is going to find its way out in your life through the way that you act. This is not a works-based theology. What he's saying is, if Jesus has truly saved you by grace and regenerated you and the Holy Spirit is living within your life, you will live differently. You will live by faith, not just think according to faith. So we've been talking about this idea that um, there's treasure in heaven. And that really, that's what it's all about because eternity is forever and this life is so short, right? And so you could say, well, do you believe that the treasure in heaven is really what it's all about? And most of us would say yes. And the question then becomes, do you live as if you believe that? Or is it just lip service? Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. If, if you really believed, you would act on your belief. James chapter 2, verse 14, what use is it if a man says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? And the implication is no. He says just three or four verses later, faith without works is dead. So, so here's what I'm saying, guys. We said this is going to be an awkward sermon series. And so far, I've been treading pretty lightly. Today, it's going to be a little bit more awkward. Today, I'm going to make some of you angry. Because I think it's time for us to get a whole lot more serious than perhaps we have been comfortable becoming up until now. We got to ask ourselves, why do I love stuff so much? Do, do I really not have enough? I mean, seriously? And today I'm going to introduce you to a man who loved his material wealth so much that he allowed it to keep him from a saving relationship with Jesus. It's a very well-known story. It's in Luke chapter 18. So grab your Bibles. Go to the New Testament. Third book is the book of Luke. Go to chapter 18. We're going to pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 18. Luke 18, 18. Let me read you the first verse in the section. A ruler questioned him. Him is Jesus. Saying, good teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's just stop there. So, so this ruler comes up to Jesus and he questions him and he says, Good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? First of all, I want you to notice his respect for Jesus. This is a ruler, okay? He, he's known forever. He's in, in three of the Gospels, I believe. He's known forever as the rich, young ruler. When you put all of the Gospel accounts together and see Jesus' story, you find out he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. Pretty much got it made, right? Uh, he has power, he has youth, and he has wealth. And yet, as we've been saying, there's still something missing even when you have everything that you think you want, right? So he comes to Jesus and he goes, what, do I, what am I still lacking? 
What do I still need? How, how do I have this life that I hear you talking about? And he calls Jesus a good teacher, which puts him on par with seems like everybody I talk to about Jesus these days. I get a whole lot of, well, I believe Jesus is a good teacher. And, and so let's give him some credit for respecting Jesus as being a good teacher. But let's just remind ourselves that this good teacher... That everybody says, well, I see Jesus as a good teacher, but I don't think he's the only way to heaven. Well, if he's not the only way to heaven, he sure as heck is not a good teacher. Because he said again and again and again and again in various ways something like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So either he is a false teacher or he's God, right? This guy called him a good teacher. A lot of us think of him as a good teacher. And so he comes to him and he calls him a good teacher. So he's giving some lip service at least to believing in Jesus. He's at least convinced that he's a good teacher. In fact, in Mark's telling of this story, Mark 10, 17, it says that when this rich young ruler came up to him, he fell on his knees before him and implored him saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, a ruler now, a ruler. This is a guy who is used to walking into a room and everyone stands up and salutes. He's a ruler. He's used to the idea that when he sits on a throne, somebody comes up and kneels before him and makes a petition. He's a ruler. And now he finds himself kneeling before this good teacher and crying out to him. I, I think he's sincere as can be. I have no reason to believe he's not. Good teacher, what must I do? He, he respects him. Uh, from the outside, he looks like a follower of Jesus. He looks like any one of the disciples. He came to him with questions. He saw him as a teacher. He thought of him as good. He knelt down before him. He looks like any of the disciples. He looks like any of us. And then we keep going in verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus is framing the context for the rest of the conversation, and he's setting this guy up. So he says, why do you call me good? It's so funny to watch how often Jesus answers a question with a question. And he says, why do you call me good? After all, no one is good except God alone. So what he's saying is, if you're really going to go with the good teacher thing, you have to understand, if I'm good, I'm God. Okay, so he's saying, you've come to me and you're asking me and you're kneeling before me, which is all completely appropriate because if I'm good, I'm God because there's nobody who is good except for God alone. Now, why make this point? Because later he's going to challenge this guy's thinking and his lifestyle. And the question is going to be, do you really believe he's God, Right. That's why I've been trying to set up this entire sermon series based on the idea that, first of all, let's get this straight. There is a God and he's not you, right? We have to bow before him. We have to follow him. So this good teacher is God. And Jesus makes that abundantly clear. That implies the need for obedience. He's establishing himself as the one in authority, and I think this man needed to be taught that nobody is good except God alone because, frankly, he's pretty impressed with himself. Look at verses 20 and 21 as he continues. 
Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He's not giving them all 10 of the commandments, but he pulls a representative group of commandments and he basically says, these are the ones that are easy to measure, right? This is not like coveting, this is stealing. You know whether you stole or not. You know whether you lied or not. You know whether you murdered or committed adultery. And so he's saying, have you kept these basic rules for life, just the basic standard rules for living? And the guy replies by saying, yeah, I've kept them all. He says, verse 21, all these things I have kept from my youth. See, a lot of us see ourselves the same way this guy seemed to see himself. He's a good guy. He's a religious guy. He knows the rules. He follows the rules. He's a good guy. And when we look in the mirror and we go, I'm a good guy. My problem is when I look in the mirror and go, I'm a good guy, the guy looking back from me, at me from the mirror knows it's not true. And he says, really? Ever tell a lie? That's bearing false witness. Do you ever take something that wasn't yours? Like, I don't know, maybe just an incorrect number on your tax form, since it's that time of year, I'll bring that up. <laughs> maybe, maybe just a few pens from the office. Maybe, maybe somebody's place in line. Do you ever take something that wasn't yours? Do you ever disrespect your parents? Uh, yeah. You go, okay, 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 but I have not committed adultery. And if that's true for you, good. God bless you. Except that if you're going to use Jesus's definition where he says, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And you go, okay, I'm losing this argument, but at least I've never murdered. And he says, if you're angry at your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. So he's setting this guy up to go, maybe when I say I'm a good guy, I'm not such a good guy. Guys, so much of learning to trust and obey God has to do with recognizing where we are in relation to where God is. Noticing that gigantic gap between us and going, he's the standard of righteousness. He's the standard of holiness. He's the standard of goodness. And we don't measure up. So Jesus sees that this guy doesn't understand what it means to be a true follower of God. This guy thinks that to be a follower of rules is to be a follower of God, and he's missed the point. Jesus wants him to see that it's really all about his heart. And that brings us to this question that we keep coming back to, and we're going to keep coming back to in this series, who or what owns your heart? Because remember what Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Another question, who or what is your master? Remember what Jesus said? No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus hits this guy with this truth that is going to shake him to the core. Look at verses 22 and 23. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. 
and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, you read that, it's, it's about as simple and straightforward as it could be. And you, you might go, so, so apparently it's simple. If you, if you want to have eternal life, you have to sell everything and give it to the poor. No, that's not the point of the passage. This is one guy. And as far as we know, this is the only guy he ever said this to. This guy was holding on to stuff that was keeping him from following Jesus. That's the point. This is not about what you sell or what you keep. It's not about what you give or what you earn. It is about following Jesus. And one of the problems, Jesus goes on to talk about how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He compares it to a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle, which is absolutely impossible. A camel is huge and the opening of an eye of a needle is so small. And he says, that's how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So understand the metaphor, understand the analogy. When you are weighed down with stuff that has your heart and holds on to you, you can't get in. You have to take off all the encumbrances, throw off the things that are causing you to stumble, the things that are uh, competing for your heart. You got to get rid of those things in order to follow Jesus. This is a passage not about what you sell or what you give up or how much you give. It's a passage about a willingness to follow Jesus, whatever the cost. And being willing to let go of anything that will hold you back from doing that. It's about finding your identity in Christ. This man's identity had been about being good and being rich. And you remember what happened when Jesus called Peter, James, Andrew, and John? We talked about this a few weeks ago. They were fishermen, and he went and called them and said, follow me. They had to drop their nets, leave their boats, and walk away from their businesses. They had to let go of everything. If they had decided to stay and hold on to those things, which had been their source of supply, their source of comfort, their source of identity, if they had held on to any of those things, they would not have been able to leave where they were and go to where he was taking them. And what we sometimes forget is you cannot stay where you are and follow Jesus at the same time. It's impossible. And so we got to always be grappling with this question, what is it that's in my way? What is it that might hinder me from following Jesus? Now, this rich young ruler loved his earthly treasure an awful lot. It says he heard Jesus' call and he walked away sad because he had so much. He loved it. Now let me take a minute and clarify some things because I don't want to be misunderstood and I don't want the scripture to be misunderstood about this idea of treasure on earth that we have to leave in order to have treasure in heaven and more of it. There's several places in scripture where we're we're told to store up treasures in heaven. We are told that uh, we will be rewarded with treasures in heaven for our works on earth. Um, In fact, the story that Jesus, the story we're looking at right here, Jesus tells this rich young ruler, he says, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Just follow me. So is God appealing to our selfishness and greed when he tells us, let go of the stuff here, I promise it'll be worth it when you get there. You're going to get more. 
You're going to be richer in heaven than you ever imagined being on earth, but you're going to have to let go of it. Is he recognizing how greedy we are and that we're all sitting here going, you know what? You know what would be cool? Like, it's really cool if you're the richest guy in your neighborhood. If you're the richest guy in heaven, that's impressive. In a heaven where they say the streets are made of gold, which is a commentary on, I don't know if it's a commentary on the richness of heaven or the worthlessness of gold. But either way, they paved the streets with gold and you're the richest guy in heaven. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is saying, listen, just give up a lot. I promise you, I'll give you more. And he's appealing to our greed and selfishness. Why would he do that? The scripture tells us over and over and over again that he hates greed and he hates selfishness. That it's not about us, that it's about him. And it's about his glory and his riches and not our glory and our riches. So when we think about him doing that, it just sort of doesn't make sense. When I was in about fifth grade, maybe sixth grade, I wasn't getting the grades that my dad thought I should be getting. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. And... He sat me down after a report card came home, and he said, Doug, a new semester begins tomorrow. If you get straight A's for this semester, I will give you this $50 bill. Now, first of all, this was the Stone Ages when $50 was worth a lot. (laughs) Secondly, I was in fifth grade. I could not imagine what you could spend $50 on. I thought, I'll buy maybe a hotel chain or something like that, right? (laughs) private jet, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'll buy a football team, right? That was kind of what I thought. And you know what? That semester and every semester after that that I can remember, I got straight A's until I was like one semester in high school, I missed it. And every time I got that 50 bucks, you know what that means? It doesn't mean I'm smart. It means I'm lazy. It means I wasn't working my hardest, and he recognized that, and he thought, how can I motivate him? I know, greed. He knew my heart. <laughs> He's like, I will bribe this kid, and he will do better, and it worked. Is that what our Heavenly Father is doing? Is he trying to leverage our greed? That makes no sense to me, because the Scripture warns us against selfishness. It warns us against greed at every turn. We are not called to make selfish decisions to create more treasure for ourselves in heaven. It looks great on earth. Oh, isn't he unselfish? Isn't she unselfish? No, we're as selfish as can be because we believe the fact that we're going to get even bigger treasure in heaven. If that's your motivation, then the Lord who knows your heart is going, uh, excuse me, you missed the point. We are not called to build the biggest treasure we can for ourselves in heaven, although he promises a great treasure. We are called to follow Jesus. We are called to trust God. We are called to live for his glory. We're called to make our lives about him and not about ourselves. And he promises that as we do that following of him, he is going to take care of the treasure issue. Believe me, you're going to like the treasure. You just have to trust him. We're called to live for his glory. It's not a matter of trying to become the richest one in heaven. It's a matter of disconnecting our hearts from the trinkets that we have given our hearts to that we call treasure here when he knows what real treasure is all about. 
So this rich man walks away sad because he had so much treasure here on earth and he was afraid to trust Jesus to give him an even greater treasure and he missed the real treasure. That's why Jesus says what he does in verses 24 and 25 about how sad it is and how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And Jesus' heart breaks because those who have great wealth on earth find it so hard to risk that to trust him. Don't you think that if you were super, super rich and God came to you and said, I want you to get rid of all of it in order to follow me, that it would be super hard to do? Well, let me say what I've already said in this series. You are super, super rich. And I'm going to keep pounding this home because we still don't understand it. The poor flock to the gospel. Jesus comes to someone in absolute poverty, sitting on a trash heap, picking through the trash, trying to find enough food to feed themselves and their children for that day. And Jesus comes to that person and says, follow me, I have something better for you. And the person says, okay. What are they going to say? No, I really love the trash heap. I have found that in, in third world countries where I've been all around the world, evangelism just comes so much easier. People, people listen when you tell them about the gospel. They're interested. I'll never forget, it was um, <clears throat> 2000, I believe. The year 2000 was the first year I took a significant um, mission trip to a place that was incredibly poverty stricken. Uh, and it was El Salvador. And I was in El Salvador, and what, what I did was I would just go to a street corner in an area where there's a lot of people walking around, and I would just stand on the street corner and begin preaching loudly in Spanish. And within two to five minutes, there'd be two to three hundred people surrounding me listening to what I had to say. And I would invite them to give their lives to Christ, and they would press in on me crying and saying yes to Jesus. It was, it was the most moving experience I had ever experienced. Just seeing people say yes to the gospel, seeing people hear about the gospel and go, oh yes, because when I talked about a, a, a hope in heaven and they didn't have a hope on earth, it was relatively easy for them to walk away from hopelessness to hope, right? But here in Southern California, you live in one of the toughest mission fields in the world because in many ways, we're just doing fine. <laughs> How many of us are like, oh, I'm so needy, and we live thinking that we're so needy. We're not needy. We're doing great. And it's hard to imagine that Jesus could offer us something better. And we can't imagine giving up our rights to our wealth and our comfort and our lives of ease in order to follow Jesus. And if that's what he's really calling us to do, that's a whole different challenge than when you're sitting on a trash heap and he offers you something better. Those fishermen that he called, they had to put down their nets, leave their boats and their businesses, everything they had counted on to take care of them. They had to walk away in order to follow Jesus. But the moment that they did, they ceased being fishermen and became followers of Jesus. And, and this ruler would have had to give up immense wealth in order to follow Jesus because the wealth had his heart and a man cannot serve two masters. 
And you and I have to walk away from whatever or whoever might be the one that holds our heart and gets in the way of our relationship with Jesus. And if we want to experience real treasure, we're going to have to walk away from this so-called treasure that we've learned to love so much. You can't serve two masters. And guys, this is why, if I can just get on my soapbox for a second, this is why I think it is such a ridiculous cop-out when I hear Christians, and particularly preachers, talking about this rule that if you're a Christian, you have to give God 10% of your income. It's the, the rule that says that God expects you to give him 10% of your income is a myth. Write that down. I said it. It's a myth. So if you're sitting here worried, he's going to tell me I got to start giving 10%. I don't know how I'm going to find 10%. I don't know how I could do it. He's going to tell me I got to give 10%. I heard the Bible says you got to give 10%. I'm telling you right now, it's a myth. Now, the Old Testament is filled with verses that say you should give God 10%. In fact, if you study them all in context and look at all the verses together, you realize that he's not demanding that they give 10%, but if you, it's 10% here and 10% there and another 14% here and 8% over there, and when you add it all up, it's about 50%. And the children of Israel in the Old Testament were required to give 50%. Now, some of you have looks on your face like, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> I just told you you don't have to give 10% and you went, whew, and I said 50 and you, you swallowed hard. Listen, guys, let me be clear. We are not citizens of the ancient nation of Israel and we are not under the Old Testament law, so who cares how much they had to give? It has nothing to do with us. God does not require you to give 10%. God does not require you to give 50%. He insists upon everything. He requires that you give him everything. He wants us to willingly release everything to him and then let him decide what the priorities will be for what is his anyway and we are just stewards of. I really appreciate it in our grace group this week. My wife had a great insight about this and she said, I really just always picture open hands because because, you know, we have to have open hands to receive the blessings that the Lord is giving us. But what often happens is that when we get those blessings, we close our hands around them. And what God requires of us is that we have open hands so he can pour blessings into our hands and remove them and use them in someone else's life whenever he wants to. And if we want to live a life of faith, we have to live it with open hands. Now you see why I married that lady? Yeah. <laughs> Smart. Let's stop making it out to be about how much we're allowed to keep. Because you know what? You want to have the 10% argument? That's fine. When you say, I give 10% to the Lord, what you're really saying is, I keep 90%. That's what that's about. It's about, I'm going to control the lion's share of my stuff. Why? Because I love my stuff. My stuff gives me comfort. It gives me peace. It gives me hope. It gives me a sense of security. You know what it gives you? It gives you a counterfeit version of everything that only Jesus can truly give you. That's what it gives you. And I want to hold on to it so bad. 
Last week, we talked about contentment from Philippians 4. You remember that? Paul was saying, I've learned how to be content no matter what my circumstances. I could be content when I'm rich, content when I'm poor. I could do all things through him who strengthens me. Poverty doesn't take away my contentment. And wealth doesn't give me contentment. And when I start thinking that it will, I've put my hope in the wrong place. Remember that? Well, that passage is where Paul is thanking the Philippians because um, even though he knows that most of them are quite poor, he knows that they have given even above and beyond what they can afford in order to support his ministry, and they have sent a gift, and he is thanking them for sending that gift, and he's commending them for trusting God the way they have. Now, I want, you to, I want us to see how he wraps that up, so I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. It's right after Ephesians, before Colossians in your New Testament. Go to Philippians chapter 4, and... and you know, it's in verses, say, 10 through 18, where he's talking about the gift they've given and how sacrificial they were and how he's content and he's learned to be content in all circumstances. And then he comes to verse 19, where he closes his argument on the topic. And this is the very end of his letter. This is what he wants to leave them with. Philippians 4, 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Do you know how God promises to supply your needs? Number one, according to his riches. Would you like your needs supplied by his riches or yours? His. He says, I will supply your needs according to my riches. How will I supply your needs so richly? In Christ Jesus. Stop thinking that it's in the larger bank account. Stop thinking that it's in the mansions in glory. It's in Jesus. He's the treasure. That's what he's trying to say. If you follow Jesus, you always have the treasure because Jesus is the treasure. And when you make anything else your treasure, you will be sorely, sorely disappointed. You don't have to be afraid then to be generous. God has promised to supply all of your needs according to his riches. And his riches are incredible. How many of you believe it's true? He'll supply according to his riches, right? Okay. You raised your hand. Let me ask you this. Does your checkbook show evidence of that? Or I, I know I'm only talking to old people. Does your ATM <laughs> statement show evidence of that? The way you spend the money that he has poured into those open hands, does it show that you actually believe that you don't have to worry about you, that you can do whatever he calls you to do? And if he calls you to save, God bless you, save. And if he calls you to give beyond what you think is your means, you give beyond your means and he will supply according to his riches and glory. If you believe it, it's time to put the balloon between your teeth. It's time to actually live according to what God has called you to do. And I know this is the point. Some of you are going to want to get up and walk out. But if you get up and walk out, we're all going to know you're greedy. Just telling you. <laughs> so many times Jesus said that when we walk away from what we think is treasure and it's really just trinkets, when we walk away from that kind of treasure, he will Give us more treasure than we could ever imagine. And again, do we believe it? Listen, 
it's hard to believe it with our lives because we're so rich. So I'm not saying it's not a blessing to be as wealthy as we are. I'm just saying that it has two sides. When that rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, he was, Jesus was grieved because that man had chosen his master and he chose wrong. That's why he said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why evangelism comes so much easier in a place where they don't have such material wealth and so many distractions like that we have. I, I know you're getting sick of this. I'm just trying, I'm just convinced we still don't understand it. So let me just drive this home, okay? I'm, I'm looking here at this group. I'm going to say, you guys in the center section just remain seated, but those of you on the two side sections, if you're able to stand, please stand up. Okay, we're going to illustrate this. I'm, I'm just doing a quick estimation. I'm going to say this is roughly maybe a little more than 100 people. We're going to call this 100 people that are standing right now, Okay. Now, here's what you have to understand, okay? Uh, there, there's, there's seven, seven and a half pe uh, billion people in the world, something like that. Um, I didn't count them all myself. I just looked it up. But there's seven and a half billion people, something like that, in the world today. Um, according to research, about three and a half billion of those people, about half, live on less than $2.50 a day, Okay? So I want this hat. You guys sit down, okay? You're the ones who live on $2.50 a day or less. That leaves us this half, okay? You guys are representative of half of the earth's population. Now, if you have a refrigerator at home with any amount of food in it, then um, you are richer than 75% of the earth's population, so what I'm going to do is here just from you, Nick, over this way, all of you guys sit down, the rest of you keep standing, okay? Let's just say I didn't do this math very good or you guys don't sit down very good, but whatever the deal is, let's say this is now 25% of the earth's population, okay? That's what they represent. If you have any money at all in the bank or money in your wallet or purse right now, or a change jar at home that you're collecting money in and saving up, if you have any kind of money saved at all, then you are richer than 92% of the people in the world. So I want to leave just eight of you standing. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, so that you and you, you two in the back sit down. We'll leave eight people standing. Okay? Those eight people... That's, that's the 1%, okay? These guys are 8%, but listen to this. I haven't mentioned if you own a car or not, or if you have a house, or if you have two cars or three cars. <laughs> you can afford to have pets at home. You go out to dinner once in a while. If so, then all but one. Sandra, you keep standing. Everybody else sit down. Sandra is the richest person in the world. <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead and sit down. See, I just want us to understand, you guys, because we live in a place, by God's blessing, I'm thankful, I'm not apologizing, God put us here. We live in a place where everyone's in the 1%. 
Almost nobody that lives in Southern California is above the one percentile in terms of being the richest people in the world. And I'm telling you that for this reason. We can read a story about a rich, powerful, young man, and we could say, I have nothing in common with him. This story is not about me. The story is exactly about you. You're the rich young ruler. And we need to understand that because the lifestyle that we have gotten into, the way that we, everything around us is, um, the, the, the way the media is, the way that we got to keep up with the neighbors and all of that kind of stuff is such a difficult distraction. This is why Jesus said it is really hard to follow him when you have all this other stuff. And we're in danger of missing the incredible treasure that God has for us because we're holding so tightly to the trinkets that we call treasure. Now, you remember that last week we looked at 1 Timothy 6 where Paul wrote, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, right? Um, I'm going to finish today's message where Paul finished his letter to Timothy back in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if your Bible happens to still be open to Philippians, just a few pages to the right, you're going to come to 1 Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where he says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. People have been pierced because of their love of money. I want you to come down to verse 17. Now remember, Timothy's a young pastor in a place called Ephesus, a very wealthy city. And he's trying to pastor these people. And Paul is telling him, Timothy, if you love your people, I'm going to tell you what to teach them. If you really want to help them, Teach them this. And this is how he ends his letter to Timothy. Verse 17, 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Okay? So see the balance there. God has supplied us with all things for what purpose? To enjoy. God has no problem with the fact that you went to the Brazilian barbecue. <laughs> he might have a problem with the way you acted once you were there, but, but he has no problem with the fact that you live in an air-conditioned home and have nice things. God gave that to you. It's meant for your enjoyment. It's meant to be a blessing, and it's meant to be shared, but it's certainly meant to be held in an open hand. Verse 18, instruct them, these rich people, instruct them to do good, not talk good, not pretend good, not say they believe what's good, but to do good. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now, when he's talking about storing up a treasure for the foundation of the future, he's not talking about your IRA. He's talking about heaven, storing up treasures in heaven. And he says, if you're rich, you can easily be led off track and stop 
truly following Jesus and just go back to being like the rich young ruler who kneels down from time to time, who gives lip service from time to time, but when the rubber meets the road, he says, what's mine is mine and I'm not following Jesus. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to lay some stuff down. Paul tells Timothy to tell his congregation that because he's their pastor and he loves them. Guys, I'm your pastor and I love you. And I'm going to be just flat out vulnerable and honest with you and say, I would really rather not be talking to you about money right now. It would be so much easier for me to just skip this whole thing about sacrificial life and giving and trusting God. And because nobody likes to hear it, it makes us all uncomfortable. And I know that. So the easy thing for me to do is just find some passage that talks about how much God loves you and just keep preaching that passage forever. That would be the easy thing for me to do. But I'm your pastor and I have to give an account to God. I'm a shepherd who's called to love the sheep. And what Paul says to Timothy is, if you love the sheep and your sheep happen to be rich, tell them to be rich in good works. Tell them to be generous. Tell them to stop being conceited and thinking they're taking care of themselves. Tell them that they are meant to share everything they have with others. Tell them to hold everything that they've been given in open hands because otherwise they're going to miss the real treasure. And I'm just going to be really honest with you and say, I am not preaching this message so next week's offering will be better. I'm not kidding. I don't care what next week's offering is. Roger's not here. I could say that out loud. (laughs) I don't care what next week's offering is. Guys, I don't care if you give. I don't care if you drop 50 cents in the plate or just pass it when it goes by. I don't care if you're given 10 grand a month. I don't care. And I'm going to tell you why. Two reasons. Number one, I don't know if you know this or not, but I have no idea what anybody in this church gives. I don't want to know. There are people whose job it is to pay attention and get all those receipts out and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to know. Because I don't want to find myself kissing up to rich people who give a lot and ignoring people who don't. So I don't want to know. So I have no idea. So if you're thinking, oh, he's, he's looking at me when he's saying he should be giving more. I'm not. If the Holy Spirit is, you deal with him on that. Okay. Number two, I don't care what next week's offering is because I've been in this church for almost 30 years and God has supplied our needs every single day of that time. And I've never had to beg people for money and I've never had to twist arms and I've never had to manipulate and I've never had to lie to you and tell you that, you know, if you give more then God's going to give you a BMW. I've never done any of that kind of stuff because I don't care how much you give. I don't think you're the, you're the ones who pay the bills around here anyway. God does. Okay. So I have no wrong motive in saying what I'm saying. If you're not giving sacrificially, you are missing the joy of watching God provide in ways you can't provide for yourself. And I don't want you to miss it. So I encourage you to trust God because those trinkets that we call treasure, they can really get in our way. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, um, 
I was in El Salvador in 2000. One year later, almost to the day, January of 2001, um, there was a 7.7 earthquake where I was in El Salvador. And the little colonia, the neighborhood where I was ministering, where the houses are made out of sheet metal and cardboard, and so many people came to know Jesus, that little village that sat at the bottom of this hill, just steep hill right here in this village, that hill came down on that town, and all of those houses were covered in mud, and there was 850 deaths. And I remember hearing that and hearing the literal neighborhood where it happened and realizing these were the people I had been with just a year ago. And I remember weeping for those who were lost. And I remember rejoicing for those who were already in heaven ahead of me because they had chosen to let go of their trinkets and take the hand of Jesus. Guys, it's real. Life is short, eternity is forever. And that leads us to this question. We, we end up right where we began. Do you believe God enough to hold the balloon between your teeth? Or is it just comfortable to raise your hand and say, I believe God? Do you really believe Him? Or is it lip service? May God empower us all to take at least one more step of faith to trust Him to be our source of supply. I promise you, he will not let you down. Let's stand together and pray.